Good morning. You guys doing well? Outstanding. Good to have you with us. If you have your Bibles, you can turn to Exodus chapter 17. We'll start at verse 8, work our way to chapter 18. We'll do that whole chapter, so about a chapter and a half here this, this morning, this weekend. Exodus, the way out. Leadership lessons is what we're talking about here this morning. Also, grab your sermon notes out. You can follow along. Every Christian is a leader. If you're a Christian, you're a leader, whether you realize it or not. Leadership is about influence. Whether you are a CEO, teacher, parent, or friend, you will lead. You will influence others either directly or indirectly for good or bad. If you want to influence people for the gospel, which would be the heart of every Christian, you're going to want to influence others for the gospel. If you want to do that, you must learn how to live a grace-paced life in a burnout culture. Would you agree with me that this is kind of a burnout culture that we live in? Show of hands, yep. No doubt about it. And so you gotta learn how to do that. You gotta learn to live a grace-paced life in a burnout culture. We're gonna learn some leadership lessons. I've got 10 of those here today. And uh, so you can see on the notes, leadership lessons for a grace-paced life in a burnout culture. Before we do that, we're going to read through our text completely, which is about a chapter and a half, and then we'll unpack our notes. But before we do that, let's pray once again. Would you bow your heads with me? God, we are delighted to be here today. We love your presence. We love your presence. We love studying your word. We know that a family, a church, a company, any organization rises or falls upon its leadership. So teach us these leadership lessons and how we can live a grace-paced life in this burnout culture so that we can have greater influence for the gospel as your blood-bought and beloved people in this fallen and broken world. We ask these things in Jesus' glorious name and everyone said amen. amen. So let's take a look at this text. It's gonna take me a little bit to uh, read through it, but uh, I'll comment briefly from time to time to help you understand the context here. Working our way through Exodus, this is uh, one of my favorite ways to study, just working through this uh, whole book in the Old Testament. And so thus far, we've watched the Israelites be led through the Red Sea on the other side of the shore. It's the song of the redeemed. We saw that in chapter 15. And they're singing that song as Egyptian uh, bodies are being washed up on the shore. Pretty crazy scene. And then they head out towards the promised land. Three days into their journey, they get bitter water. They have bitter water. They grumble. God changes the bitter water, makes it sweet. And then chapter 16, they get hungry. There's no food. So we've got manna from heaven. Talked about that last weekend. And then chapter 17, they're thirsty. I guess you need water in the desert, don't you? And uh, they're thirsty. And so Moses, uh, obviously, or God using Moses, brings water from the rock, which is a beautiful picture of our Savior. We pick up the story here in chapter 17, verse 8, then Amalek came and fought with Israel at Rephidim. So Moses said to Joshua, choose for us men and go out and fight with Amalek. Tomorrow I will stand on the top of the hill with the staff of God in my hand. So Joshua did as Moses told him and fought with Amalek while Moses, Aaron, and Hur went up to the top of the hill. And whenever Moses held up his hand, Israel prevailed. And whenever he lowered his hand, Amalek prevailed. But Moses' hands grew weary. Important point here. Moses' hands grew weary, so they took a stone and put it 
under him, and he sat on it, while Aaron and Hur held up his hands, one on one side and the other on the other side, so his hands were steady until the going down of the sun, and Joshua overwhelmed Amalek and his people with the sword. Then the Lord said to Moses, write this as a memorial in a book and recite it in the ears of Joshua that I will utterly blot out the memory of Amalek from under the heaven. And Moses built an altar and called the name of it, the Lord is my banner. This is one of the many uh, Old Testament compound Hebrew names for God. Jehovah is, uh, Jehovah Nissi is what it is. And we'll talk more about that through our study. But that's what he's saying. The Lord is my banner, saying, a hand upon the throne of the Lord. The Lord will have war with Amalek from generation to generation. Some really good lessons in that. We're going to continue to work through this, though. We'll get to it on our notes. And so it, it transitions here. Chapter 18, verse 1. Jethro, the priest of Midian, now he's a pagan priest, okay? He's not a priest of Yahweh, but he's a pagan priest. Moses' father-in-law heard of all that God had done for Moses and for Israel, his people, how the Lord had brought Israel out of Egypt. Now Jethro, Moses' father-in-law, had taken Zipporah, Moses' wife, after he had sent her home, so Moses had sent Zephora home with their two sons to hang out with, with her dad for, it doesn't say how long. Notice the names of his sons along with his two sons. The name of the one was Gershom. Notice his, this is significant. And so his name means, for he said, I have been a sojourner in a foreign land. And the name of the other, Eliezer, for he said, the Lord of my father was my help and delivered me from the sword of Pharaoh. Verse 5, Jethro, Moses' father-in-law, came with his sons and his wife to Moses in the wilderness where he was encamped at the mountain of God. So he sends his wife and sons to the father-in-law. Now they're all showing up here. And verse 6, And when he sent word to Moses, I, your father-in-law Jethro, am coming to you with your wife and her two sons with her. Moses went out to meet his father-in-law and bowed down and kissed him. And they asked each other of their welfare and went into the tent. This is a significant verse too. Then Moses told his father-in-law all that the Lord had done to Pharaoh and to the Egyptians for Israel's sake, all the hardship that had come upon them in the way and how the Lord had delivered them. I, I just want you to take note of this. He talks about the hardship, talks about the difficulties they've been through. Notice in this, he doesn't talk about what a great guy he is. It's not, he's not focused on, look at me, look how I've led all these people and he focuses on God, it's very God glorifying. And he also doesn't deny reality of hardship. This is what I love about the Christian life. It doesn't deny reality, it defies reality with, with God, something much bigger in our life, because that's what he says here. So he says, all the hardship that had, been, had, that had come upon them in the way and how the Lord had delivered them. So he's just like, wow, you have no idea what God's been doing here. Let me tell you, let me tell you about God's greatness and his goodness. And Jethro, and you, and you really get an idea here that there's a, there's a conversion experience uh, that, that Jethro begins to have this. He's having an encounter with the living God through what Moses is telling him. 
And I believe that uh, Jethro converts to Yahweh. Listen to what it says. And Jethro rejoiced for all the good that the Lord had done to Israel in that he had delivered them out of the hand of the Egyptians. Jethro said, blessed be the Lord, blessed be Yahweh. See, they're all capital letters, L-O-R-D, so that's his personal name, who has delivered you out of the hand of the Egyptians and out of the hand of Pharaoh and has delivered the people from under the hand of the Egyptians. So he's just glorifying God. He's like, wow, that's amazing. Now I know that the Lord is greater than all gods because in this affair they dealt arrogantly with the people and Jethro, Moses' father-in-law, brought a burnt offering and sacrifices to God and Aaron came with all of the elders of Israel to eat bread with Moses' father-in-law before God. They have a party. They celebrate. Now the next day Moses set to judge the people and the people stood around Moses from morning till evening. That's important, from morning till evening. From sun up to sun down. This dude is working hard and the people are coming to him for advice. And uh, so when Moses' father-in-law saw all that he was doing for the people, he said, what is this that you are doing for the people? Notice what he says here. Why do you sit alone? He's going to use that a couple times is going to be seen here. Why do you sit alone and all the people stand around you from morning till evening? And Moses said to his father-in-law, so Moses is going to try to explain this. Well, I'm, I'm doing really a good thing here. Listen up. Some of you that are workaholics, okay, uh, this is really good advice. He says, and Moses said to his father-in-law, because the people come to me to inquire God, when they have a dispute, they come to me and I decide between one person and another, and I make them know the statutes of God and his law, which is a very good thing. He's doing a very good thing, but, but listen, his father-in-law is not buying it. He says, yeah, 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 you're doing a good thing, but you're killing yourself. Listen to what he says here, verse 17, Moses' father-in-law said to him, what you are doing is not good. You told me it's a good thing. I'm telling you, it's not good. And I started, as I looked at this, I was trying to understand what this, what this might be and how could we relate to this. And I, the first thing I was thinking about is the DMV, the DMV. You guys know what I'm talking about? How many of you have ever been to the DMV? Is that one horrible place or what? It's like you walk into this room, if you can even get into the room, because it's massive people, and they've only got maybe one or two windows open. The rest, I don't know where the rest of the people are. Got two windows, long lines, got to go pick a number. You can't even figure out which window you're supposed to stand at. If you stand at the wrong window, you can stand for hours and then realize, oh, you're supposed to be at that other window over there. And you're just totally frustrated. That's what's happening here. This is the DMV. <laughs> there's only one window open, and there's all these people. This is crazy, and that's why he says, yeah, yeah. He's not denying the fact that he's helping them. He's just, you need to work smarter, not harder. That's what he's saying here. He says, what you're doing is not good, verse 18. You and the people with you will certainly wear yourselves out, for the thing is too heavy for you. You're not able to do it alone. Some of you need to underline that verse. That's your verse, that's why you're here this morning, to hear that. You're trying to do it all alone. Why are you doing it alone? You're going to wear yourself out. You're going to burn out. That's what he's saying. And he's not denying the fact that what he's doing is really helpful for people. And we can, we can justify all day long. Yeah, but if these, these people need me, that's what he's saying. That's what Moses is saying. These people need me. And he's just saying, that's not smart. It's not very wise. I mean, this is really good insight from God's word here. 
And, and then verse 19, now obey my voice, I will give you advice, and God be with you. You shall represent the people before God and bring their cases to God. So he's telling them, here's the boundaries you need to have in your life. Dude, you have no margin, and you need better boundaries. Here's what you should be doing. And it's just really, really smart advice. And he says, uh, so you need to be bringing the cases to God. Yeah, you need to connect with God. You need to pray. And then verse 20, and you shall warn them about the statutes and the laws and make them known the way in which they must walk and what they must do. So you connect with God in their behalf, but then, you, yeah, certainly you set the standard. You tell them about God's word and the... And, the law, and then verse 20, and, and you shall warn them about the statutes and the laws. And then verse 21, moreover, and then this is what he says, and then look for able men from all the people, men who fear God. So he's giving us leadership qualification. He says, look for these kind of guys. Moreover, look for able men from all the people, men who fear God, who are trustworthy and hate a bribe. They can't be bought. They show no favoritism and place such men over the people as chiefs of thousands, of hundreds, of fifties, and tens. He's giving him an org chart. This is an organizational chart. He's just saying, hey, you know what? Your, your organization is shot, and you're going to be worn out, and you're frustrating these people, so you need to start setting up some sort of an organization here where people's needs are being met better, and let them judge the people at all times Every great matter they shall bring to you, but any small matter they shall decide themselves. So it will be easier for you, and they will bear the burden with you. If you do this, God will direct you. As you're just saying, hey, God's, God's there with you. He's going to help you. God will direct you, and you will be able to endure. You're going to be able to finish strong. Right now, at this pace, you're going to burn out but you will be able to endure, and all of this people also will go to their place in peace. Anybody ever leave the DMV in peace? <laughs> Not me. It's like, I'm more frustrated now. And that's what he's saying. He says, you don't need, people are going to leaving and they're frustrated. You're not doing your job. And so really good insight here, verse 24. So Moses listened to the voice of his father-in-law and did all that he had said. Moses chose able men out of all of Israel and made them heads. Notice that word. So I'm going to talk about this. Uh, you can delegate task and that, that makes followers, but he's delegating authority and that's different. You're making leaders when you do that. And he's making them heads over the people, chiefs of thousands, of hundreds, of fifties, of tens, and they judged the people at all times in any hard case they brought to Moses, but any small matter they decided themselves. Then Moses let, uh, let his father-in-law depart, and he went away to his own country. This is the word of the Lord to us. So, wow, that's, there's some really great insight. God's holy word to us is uh, absolutely amazing. Let's talk about this. Uh, before we kind of work through the points, let me share with you a quick story here. A number of years ago, I was doing a, a, it was a sprint triathlon. It was during my time of doing a lot of 10Ks, and I was training for a, a marathon and did a half marathon and did a number of things. So I, I thought I would try a triathlon. 
It was a sprint triathlon. It was at Firebird Lake. It was a six-mile run. It started with a, a six-mile run, and then you, you hop in the water for a half-mile swim, and then you get out for about a 15, 20-mile bike ride. And, uh, and so, man, I was feeling so good that particular morning, and I, I wasn't pacing myself, obviously, and I was running strong. I was kind of at the front of the pack there with the, all the guys and gals and... Um, and then I jumped in that water, in that nasty water at Firebird Lake, all oily. I had no idea. It was horrible. And besides that, I was out of breath. I couldn't catch my breath. You know, you're supposed to swim with your head under the water. I was swimming with my head above the water like this. You know, I, I was dog paddling, and I had hundreds and hundreds of people swim over the top of me, wondering, what is this guy doing in the water? Because I could not catch my breath, and I was wondering if I was even going to survive. My wife was there with our kids, and um, she had the insurance man on the phone. <laughs> she was already collecting the death benefits. <laughs> yeah, I think he's, he's down. Yeah, I see him right now. No, he's not doing really well, really well here, so maybe you ought to go ahead and send me a check. And... Uh, and so uh, it, was, it was like one of those numbers. And I, she really thought I wasn't going to make it out of the water. Maybe she was hoping that I wouldn't make it out of the water. I'm still trying to get over that. It's really hurtful. But no, I'm kidding. But she was, she was like, man, what happened? And I go, I almost drowned. That's what happened. I had like 200 people swim over the top of me. And uh, then I got on the bike, and I, I just didn't do well. It was just it was one of those crazy things where I didn't pace myself and... And I tend to do that too often. Here's my point is that you go too slow and you never win or fulfill your potential. Go too fast and you injure yourself or burn out and can't finish the race. Some of you are going too slow, okay? You need to light a fire. And I know who you are. I'm kidding, I don't know who you are. God knows who you are and you need, that's, you need it's between you and God. But you need to say, am I going too slow? Am I going too fast? That's the point. And what you want to do is you want to find that sweet spot between too slow or too fast because it's vital for success and longevity, not only as an athlete, but more importantly as a Christian. You're going too slow, you're going too fast. So as we work through that, you've got to ask yourself, where am I? Am I finding that sweet spot? Am I in that sweet spot in my life? Grace-paced sweet spot. Now, uh, many of you know this. I shared it last weekend. My wife and I, we are not burned out. But we are certainly uh, compassion fatigued, and so the Board of Elders gave us permission to take a two-month sabbatical uh, this summer, and that's what we're going to do starting in uh, June 17 that week, and then we'll be back uh, the first weekend of September. And uh, so just, just reminding you of that, I talked about it last week at the end, end of the message and, and it's because we want to finish strong. We're not sure, you know, we, we believe that God has us here at Desert Breeze for another decade or two. You know, God willing, that's what we want, but we don't want to be burned out. We don't want to get to that place where we're burned out. And so we want to finish strong, and it's an opportunity for us to connect with God during that time. And not only that, as you will see in this study, this, couldn't, this study couldn't have come at a more appropriate time for us as a church family. As we talk about that, this gives opportunity for others to step up and to be developed in that. And I, I know that all the guys here, uh, we got young pastors that need to get up here and teach. I've been teaching way too much. 
I need, to, I need to pace myself a little better and let some of these younger guys get in there and teach more and develop them. And they're working on uh, two teaching series while uh, Nancy and I are going to be gone. I'm excited about it. I talked about it last week. Uh, first responders dealing with emotions, I think the first six weeks, and then there'll be about a four-week series where they're going to talk about... Uh, uh, the prison epistles or prison letters. I think there's four, uh, four or five. I think there's four of those. Uh, and so that's what they're going to be, uh, that, that's what they're working on. But let's talk about this. Let's look at this and let's see what we can learn. Leadership lessons for grace-paced life in a burnout culture, whether in ministry, the marketplace, or at home. All of these apply to us. Here's the first one. Life is a battle. You can't fight alone. Life is a battle. You can't fight alone. Exodus 17, verses 8 through 12, Amalek was a nomadic group that lived partly by attacking other population groups and plundering their wealth. Sound familiar? It should. John 10, 10, the thief comes to kill, steal, and destroy. You have an adversary. He's coming after you. He's going to take you out. And one of the ways that he does it, he gets you to burn out. He can sideline you through that. Or if he can't get you to burn out, he just gets you to slow down. Don't take it too seriously. No big deal. If he can't get you to go to hell, he's going to bring enough hell into your life. He'll either get you to speed up or slow down. He's messing with you. When Moses held up his hands, Israel prevailed in battle. But when Moses lowered his hands, Israel began to lose. Moses' hands grew weary. But through the support of Aaron and Hur, Joshua's fighters were able to overwhelm Amalek and his people with the sword. I love this because it gives you a beautiful picture of human responsibility, divine sovereignty. Remember what Moses said to Joshua? You need to pick out some fighters. You need to get down there. We need to take these people on. You got an enemy, but I'm going to be up on the mountain. I'm going to connect with God. So there's the divine sovereignty, but you've got human responsibility working hand in hand. It tells us in Proverbs 21, 31, the horse is made ready for battle, but victory belongs in the hands of the Lord. So you got your part, and God's got his part. And don't confuse the two. That's one of the things that we need to keep in mind. But life is a battle. You can't, you can't fight alone. 1 Timothy 6, 12, it tells us fight the good fight of faith. So the fight of faith, it's a fight, but it's a good fight. Believe me, it is a good fight. And you've got to fight, but you can't do it alone. That's why it tells us in Galatians 6, 2, bear one another's burdens and so fulfill the law of Christ. So let me ask you this question. Who do you support and who supports you in this good fight of faith? Who do you have in your life that you regularly get together with and they support you and you support them? We call them life groups here. Most of the ministry here at Desert Breeze happens in our life groups, in our smaller groups. And by the way, you don't even need to be a part of a small group. If you're connecting with others regularly, I would encourage you to do that. Other Christians that are supporting you and you're supporting them. Start up your own group. Call up a few friends that are Christians that can, that can support you and encourage you and help you. That's the point. Listen, if you don't do that, you're going to crash and burn. Who do you support? Who supports you in this good fight of faith? Here's the next one. Life's battles are won or lost in the place of prayer. And uh, prayer, I'm saying, I'm calling it all in intimacy with God. That's uh, a, a title of a book that I read a few years ago, which is a great book by Timothy Keller. Prayer, all in intimacy with God. All is assertive supplication. Intimacy is peaceful adoration. 
Exodus 17, verses 12 through 16, the battle is won through Moses' hands being lifted up to God, which is a sign of dependent prayer elsewhere in the Bible. I'm not going to go through all the text, but there's a lot of texts that talk about lifting up our holy hands to God or lifting up our hands to God in prayer. Also in this text, victory against Amalek, After the victory against Amalek, Moses builds an altar and calls the name of it, the Lord is my banner. Jehovah Nissi, one of the many Hebrew compound names for God in the Old Testament. I use this when I work through the Lord's Prayer, which is a checklist for me. Um, When I reached the point where it says, uh, our Father who art in heaven, hallowed be your name. I, I think about his name and I'll go through that in my mind. Jehovah Sidkenu, my righteousness. Jehovah Makedesh, my sanctification. Jehovah Shalom, my peace. Uh, Jehovah Shema, you are with me. Jehovah Jireh, my provider. Jehovah Nissi, my banner. Jehovah Rapha, my healer. Jehovah Rohi, my shepherd. Oh my goodness, the implications of, of each of, of his names. His character talks about how I can interact with him and how he meets my needs. And he's there for me, helping me. And that's what this is about. God will give us the victory over our enemies. What are you you struggling with? What's your biggest obstacle in your life? What trials are you facing? What temptations do you keep being overwhelmed by and overcome by? Listen, God will give you the victory over your enemies. That's what that, you need to get to know God is your banner. Jehovah Nissi, you need to get to know him. He will help you. He will be there. Yeah, you have, you have some responsibility. And yet at the same time, it's through his power and strength working in your life. So when he says, God is my banner, a banner or standard was what soldiers looked to in battle. It was a rallying point, the sign to which the army stood firm. So let me just give you a couple verses as it relates to prayer. Prayer is our rallying point. It's where we come back to to get strength and the stamina that we need. James 4, 2, it says, uh, you have not because you what? Anybody? We ask not. We have not because we ask not. He's talking about prayer. James 5, 16, it says, the prayers of a righteous person are powerful and effective. So you put those two verses together, and this is what it's saying about prayer. Prayer makes things happen that otherwise won't happen if you don't pray. If you don't pray, there's things that are not happening that could happen. So you need to be praying. You need to be connecting with God, all in intimacy with him. And the Bible says things happen when you do that. That's what he's saying. And that's the point of this this great story. So let me ask you this. How's your prayer life? You need times of assertive supplication, awe, and peaceful adoration, intimacy with God, or you won't be winning life's battles. You're going to be overcome by the trials of life and overtaken by the temptations of life. It's, it's a fact. I see people crash and burn all the time. And I sit down with them and say, hey, so, so how you doing? How you doing connecting with God? Do you connect with God regularly? Do you have someone else that supports you in connect? When you can't hold your hands up anymore, you can't pray, they come along and they pray for you, they pray with you. Do you have, do you have that in your life? And I'm telling you, that's critical to your survival as a Christian. You need that. You desperately need that. So, number three, your family is always your first ministry. So, now we work into the kind of that next story. That was that first story that we read. Now, the next story, talking leadership lessons, 
having a grace-paced life in a, in a burnout culture. Your family is always your first ministry. So what's interesting here about this story, I found it a bit fascinating. Exodus 18, one through seven, Moses sends his wife and, and, and two sons home to be with uh, the father-in-law, possibly on maybe a vacation that he should have taken, but he couldn't break away from work. He was just too busy. And then, and then they come back along with the father-in-law to where Israel is camped in the wilderness, and Moses goes out to meet them and seems to take a break from the action to spend some time with his father-in-law and family. You kind of get that idea here. Here's a couple thoughts as it relates to this. 1 Timothy 3, 4 through 5 gives you one on a list of many that are leadership qualifications, which all of us should aspire to. If you're a Christian, the leadership qualifications that are laid out for us are something we should all aspire to. But here's just a, a, a one on that list of many as it relates to leadership is that he says in 1 Timothy 3, 5, 4 through 5, he must manage his own household well with all dignity, keeping his children submissive. For if someone does not know how to manage his own household, how will he care for God's church? So here's what you should be looking at in my life is it, how am I loving my wife and how am I taking care of her? Because it's just her and I now. Kids are all grown and gone. And, and two, how I interact with my grown uh, children and then my grandkids and all of that. But that, that would be really an important question. How am I doing? How am I loving her and how am I working through that in my home front? How's the home front? Here's another one, 1 Timothy 5.8. But if anyone does not provide for his relatives and especially for members of his household, he has denied the faith and is worse than an unbeliever. Eee. So here's, here's all I'm saying. This is what I believe is, uh, we can learn from this. Don't do ministry at the expense of your family, but from the support and the strength of your family. I've been around this a long time. I've watched a lot of PKs crash and burn. You guys know what a PK is? PK is a pastor's kid. I've seen a lot of PKs crash and burn because dad or mom pursued ministry at the expense of their family. That should not happen. Now, when we started this church, we started in our home, and that was one of the things that Nancy and I talked about. We didn't do the best job in the world. We tried. We kept that in mind, but there were way too many times we had our kids playing in their rooms while mom and dad is in the living room trying to counsel a couple out of their crisis situation. We did that way too many times. We've apologized to our kids over that. And, we, and there was times that we, we neglected our family. I would do things completely different now than what I did in those early days. I mean, it's a miracle that Nancy and I are still involved in ministry and, and we feel as passionate as we do about ministry because we just did a lot. We took on a lot of responsibility we should have never taken on. And, we, and there's that tendency to do that because, hey, there's a, I'm, I'm helping people. I mean, I'm ministering. That's what Moses was saying. Didn't Moses say that? He said, I'm, I'm, I'm helping people. I'm helping. They don't, they're lost without me. And that's not true. His father-in-law brings him in touch with reality. It's really, really wise. Don't do ministry at the expense of your family, but from the support and strength of your family. Here's what I'm, another way of saying it. Family care is the first step in caring for others, for, for loving your neighbor as yourself, as it tells us in Matthew 22, 34 through 40. Love God with all your heart, soul, mind, strength. Love your neighbors yourself. Loving God with all your heart is really about family care. But let me put it in another term, because this is not just for for married couples and those that have kids. This is also for singles, singles too. So let me put it this way. So self-care, family care, self-care is the first step in caring for others. 
That's what I'm talking about here. It's not selfish to replenish energy and renew vitality in order to serve God and others better. You've got to put your own oxygen mask on first, then you can help others. Now, let me go a little bit deeper into this because I want to make sure that those that are single don't feel left out. The goal of the Christian life is not marriage and having kids. You guys know that, don't you? I was raised in a church background where that was kind kind of an unspoken law or rule. And if you were single... You were an odd person. Why aren't you married yet? Why don't you have kids? That is wrong. The goal of the Christian life is not marriage and having kids. It's living for God's glory, whether you are single or married or with kids or without kids. That's that's scripture. That's what the Bible teaches. Being married or single or having kids or not having kids is a gift from God. Wherever you might be in your life, that's God's work and gift to you. I was reminded of a verse in 1 Corinthians 7, 28, and Paul's talking about marriage here. Listen to what he says about marriage. He says, uh, 1 Corinthians 7, 28, those who marry will have worldly troubles, and I would spare you that. I'm going to use that as my next text at the next wedding I do. (laughs) Hey, uh, let me just give you this verse just to help you out. Before you say, I do, those who marry will have worldly troubles. And I would spare you of that. You can can get out of this right now before we say, I do. (laughs) I mean, that's what he's saying. He's almost like, he's like, don't you realize that when you got married, you just added to your troubles? That's what he's saying. That's God's word. See, here's the point. Here's part of the context of that 1 Corinthians 7, 28. If you're single, you have increased capacity for ministry. That's what it's saying. And, And you guys know this. Marriage isn't meant to fulfill you, but to point to that which does. Marriage is a reenactment of the gospel of Jesus Christ. It's not meant to fulfill you. I hear people talk about that all the time. Why'd you get married? He satisfies me. He fulfills me. I'm going, ah, what? No, Jesus. Only he can do that. Marriage isn't meant to fulfill you, but to point to that which does. Lonely, insecure, single people become lonely, insecure, married people. If you're looking to marriage or having kids to fulfill you, then you are going to be a nightmare to be married to or to have as a parent. See, here's here's the deal. My wife and I help her with this too. It took me a while to learn it. She was quicker on this. But uh, when my wife helps me to love Christ the most, I love her the best. And the same thing happens when I help her to, the marriage relationship, this is what I'm talking about here as it relates to, what was the point? Okay, the point is this, okay. (laughs) Your family is always your first ministry. I'm not saying get your fulfillment from your family. I'm saying you should create an environment to where you're helping each other to connect with Jesus. And in 27 years of ministry, if it wasn't for my wife helping to create an environment of a place of refuge and continuing to, to speak truth to me in love because I kept looking to her to get my fulfillment. 
Seriously, I nearly wrecked our marriage because of that. And she kept saying, wait, 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 I'm not the one that fulfills you. It's Jesus that fulfills you. Get off my back. And, uh, <laughs> and, she, and she didn't actually say it like that. But, uh, but, but she kind of drew healthy boundaries. She realized early on, more so than I, I'm the pastor. I'm the preacher. I should know better. And so she began to say, wait, 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 wait. That's not what this is all about. This is to be a reenactment of the gospel. We, we point to Jesus, to each other, and then out of that overflow and abundance, then we can minister. But she helped to create an atmosphere. And that's all I'm, ask, I'm saying, is that that's what you want to do, is to create that kind of healthy environment. So how's your family care? How's your self-care going? And so, okay, if you don't have a biological family, if you're not married, you, you need to connect with other. This is your family. Desert Breeze is your family. Your small group is your family, if you're single. It's healthy. So how's the family care or self-care going? Is your home or family life a safe place of refuge and strength? Okay, okay, that's enough on that one. Uh, we got a lot more to do. Number four, work from your identity, not for your identity. Work from your identity, not for your identity. First, the first most important question of life is who is God? If you don't get that one right, it's gonna mess up everything else. The second most important question of life is who are you? Better yet, if you're a Christian, whose are you? Whose are you? We're talking identity here, and I love how Moses kind of defines really his identity through the names of his son. Did you notice that? In Exodus 18, verses 3b to 4, Bersham, I've been a sojourner in a foreign land. Eliezer, the God of my father, was my help and delivered me from the sword of Pharaoh. Here's what he's saying. That he's got the gospel is in that. Once I was lost, now I have been found. Yeah. Once I was blind, now I see. That's what he's saying with, this, with his, the names of his sons. It's almost as if he's saying, that's my identity. My identity is I was a mess, and God came along and picked me up and began to put my life back together and bring about holiness and wholeness to my life. 2 Corinthians 5.17 says, those who are in Christ have become a new creation. Old things have passed away and all things have become new. So what exactly happens? What are the old things that have passed away and what are the new things that have come into our lives? How does this relate to our identity? Here's, here's, here's what you need. To <laughs> here's what happened to you when you had an encounter with Christ, and here's the, the new thing that began to transpire in, in your heart, you begin to find him to be more desirable and more satisfying than anything in life. Old things have passed away? Yeah, you were chasing after all kinds of stuff. You, you know you were. Your favorite football team, oh, you were more excited about that than anything else, or your car, your promotion or your bank account, all these things. Old things have passed away. All things have become new. Yeah, you, you looked at him and you begin to say, wow, why am I chasing that when I have him? There was a desire in you that was so ferocious that it overshadowed every other desire. And believe me, when that happens, when you have that kind of an encounter with Christ, it changes everything. He becomes the object of your worship. Yeah, all these other things that you have, you know, there's great food and great cars and all of that stuff. That just, uh, your praise doesn't terminate on that. You, those are just gifts from God and pointers back to the one who can ultimately satisfy you. And, and, and that begins to transform every part of your life. 
It changes everything because he becomes the object of your worship. And, uh, and that's so, so because of that, you have a whole new identity because you realize all that he's done. I gave you a, a list of what you should, what should be kind of resonating within your heart because of this new identity, because he is your, because he's your highest treasure and deepest pleasure. Maybe you're not familiar with that kind of language, but that's, that's very true, and that's what the Christian life is about. When that happens, and that happens because you realize, here's a list, Ephesians 1, 1 through 14. I, I walk around with these lists of things that are true about me as a Christian. This is my identity. So then out of that abundance, then I'm not chasing my identity by my performance. I already have an identity, therefore my performance comes out of that. But here's one list. Ephesians 1, 1 through 14, in Christ I am blessed, chosen, holy, adopted, accepted, redeemed, heir of God, sealed with the Holy Spirit. I mean, the implications are out of this world. We don't work to justify ourselves, we work because we are justified. Working to justify ourselves is what drives workaholism, perfectionism, and ultimately burnout. Because of the sacrificial love of Christ on the cross, you can rest and rejoice in the fact that you are an infinitely and eternally loved, secure, significant person. And then it's out of that abundance, then you pursue the things that you pursue. And healthy identity in Christ will get you out of bed in the morning, but it will also get you back to bed at night on time. You'll work hard, but you won't be a workaholic. I had to learn this. It took a long time, and I'm still learning it, but there's motivating grace, there's moderating grace. Motivating grace is the gas pedal. It speeds you up when you need to speed up, but moderating grace is the brake pedal. It slows you down when you need to slow down. So let me ask you this. Are you experiencing the freedom of the gospel from the relentless pressure of having to prove yourself because you are already proven and secure in Christ Jesus. Are you working for your identity or from your identity? That's why prayer, connecting with him is so critical because that's what you're doing. You're just renewing that. You're reestablishing that. Wait a minute, my identity's in you. No one has ever loved me more than you. I'm resting in you. Now out of that, then I can respond appropriately to life, to my responsibilities and all of that. Number five, let God's glory shine brightly through your satisfaction in him. So Exodus uh, chapter 18, verses 8 through 12, Moses told his father-in-law all that the Lord had done, all the hardship that had come upon them and how the Lord had delivered them. And then Jethro rejoices and seems to have a conversion experience because he says in verse 11, now I know the Lord is greater than all gods. Verse 12, he brings a burnt offering and sacrifices to God. This is what I love about Moses. This is... Uh, this was really a, a great uh, understanding in the, in the scriptures here, is that he doesn't seem to have any pride whatsoever when he's talking about, uh, there's no conceit or, or glory hunger. He doesn't focus on himself. When he's telling his father-in-law, he doesn't say, hey, uh, by the way, you should have saw me when I was leading them through the Red Sea. You know, he doesn't do that. He's not like boasting. And, and see, pride, pride comes in two different forms. By the way, pride is self-absorption. It's what's fundamentally wrong with us. We become self-absorbed, and it's glory hunger because we're trying to feel, uh, because we don't know our identity in Christ and why we're here, and so we're trying to satisfy that need, that internal need within us by the pursuits that we're chasing after, trying to fill that void inside of us. You don't see that with him. 
He's had an encounter with God. He knows who he is in God for the most part. I mean, he still struggles. You see that? See the struggle of that in this? But there's a, there's a security in this. And so pride comes in two different forms. Glory, hunger comes in two different forms. There's, there's boasting. That would be one form. Boasting is uh, I deserve admiration because of how much I've, I've accomplished. Look at me. I'm Moses. I mean, look what I've done. I'm the leader of all these people. He doesn't do that. He's not saying that. Nor is it based on self-pity. Self-pity would be the flip side of pride, of self-absorption. It's like, I deserve admiration because of how much I'm suffering. Because he talks about their hardship, but he doesn't go into this and go, oh my goodness, we were without water. These people were driving me crazy. I don't know what I'm going to do. He doesn't go into all that. He doesn't throw a pity party and then invite Jethro to it. He doesn't do that. He makes it about God and his glory. And that's evidence of a person that has had an encounter with God. Moses didn't want Jethro to be impressed by what he did, but what God had done. This is really a standard that we've had here for many years. At Desert Breeze, we want people to be more impressed by what Christ has done than what we do. Does that make sense? I mean, we do a lot. There's a lot that we do. We don't talk a lot about it. We talk more about him because what we do is a dim glimpse of what he's done for us. It just points back to him. So don't be impressed with what we do. Be more impressed with what he's done. And uh, I find it interesting. I, I listen to a lot of different churches in the valley and um, a lot of pastors, and I find that the church has fallen prey to this uh, reality to try to attract more people is that we, we boast about who, how great we are and all that we've done, and hey, look at us, and don't you want to be a part of a winning team, and if you join this church, or you be a part, it's like, whoa, 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 whoa. It's not about you, and it's not about your church. In fact, I've even heard major ministry leaders give their testimony, and at the end of the testimony, I ask myself, who's the hero of the testimony? Jesus or the person giving the testimony? I mean, it's inspirational. People stand up and applaud them. Oh, it's motivational. Makes you want to be a better person. The problem is it's not based on God's glory. It's more based on the glory of the institution or the glory of the person. Moses doesn't fall prey to that. 1 Corinthians 10.31, whether you eat or drink, whatever you do, do all to the glory of God. You were created to enjoy the riches of God's glory. There's nothing more beautiful than the glory of God. Once you've encountered his glory, you want him infinitely more than anything else, and you can't keep quiet about him. You're not trying to feed your ego. It's a blessed self-forgetfulness. You're captivated by him. There's no conflict between God's glory and our happiness. His glory shines brightest when we are happiest in him. So how are, you, how are you at showing God's glory through your weaknesses? Are you okay to expose your weaknesses so that his strength can be seen in that? How good are you at displaying the glory of God through your satisfaction in him? So, so when you go out and hang out with people, what, what's your goal ultimately? So that you look good? Or is it about making much of God? I would encourage you, the next time you listen to any message, whether it be on TV or the radio, or whoever it is, or even with us, you want to ask yourself the question, are they making much of themselves or are they making much of God? Because I want God. I don't want that person to get in the way of God. And that's, that's really a great, great question. Number six, here we go. Establish good boundaries to maintain healthy margin in your life. Exodus 18, 13 through 18, Moses' father-in-law confronts him about counseling the people from morning to evening and doing it alone. You and the people will wear yourselves out for this is too heavy for you and you are not able to do it alone. If you do what I tell you to do, you'll be able to endure. So you're gonna be able to finish the race and the people will go to their place in peace. So what are boundaries anyway? What are boundaries? 
turn to the person next to, them, to you real quick and just ask them, what's a boundary? Tell me what a boundary is. Real quick, do that. What's a boundary? So if you were saying, if you're saying to the person, I don't know, do you know? I don't know either. You're in big trouble, okay? <laughs> okay, you're in big trouble. You need to know what boundaries are. Ba boundaries would be fence lines. It's what you're responsible for, what you're not responsible for. Do you know what you're responsible for based on God's word? Not one with, with what someone else says that you're responsible for. You're going to have people come into your life and say, no, this is what you're responsible for. And you need to be able to say, no, I'm not. That's not my responsibility. You need to be able to make those boundary uh, differences. And so boundaries would be like a fence line. I don't mow my neighbor's yard. He doesn't mow my yard. I'm responsible for what's within my fence. Now from time to time, I could go over there and help him, but ultimately he's responsible. And I'm responsible for my part. So you've got to know that. God has established that. Servant leadership, that's what the Bible talks about, doesn't mean servant leadership doesn't mean meeting everyone's need. It doesn't mean that. We can't meet all the needs that are in the community. But we can kind of pick and choose based on what has our name as a church on those needs. And we've tried to do that. You need to do, do the same with your own life. You can't say yes to everything, and you shouldn't say no to everything. I love what it says in Galatians chapter 2, and then just a few verses down, it brings the balance in verse 5. Listen to what it says. So I already gave you this verse. Bear one another's burdens, and so fulfill the law of Christ. But then in verse 5, it gives you the balance of that. For each will have to bear his own load. What? You just told me to help him out. No, 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 no. But don't enable them. Understand what's their responsibility. Understand what's your responsibility. And know the difference between enablement and, and truly helping someone out. And if you don't have good, healthy boundaries, you're not going to have margin if you don't have any margin, it's because you don't have good, healthy boundaries. Margin is the space between my load and my limit. Margin is breadth at the top of the staircase, okay? That's what margin is. It is money at the end of the month. It's sanity after raising your kids. It is energy at the end of a workday for your family. If you have no margin in your life, it's because you don't have good boundaries and you don't have good boundaries because you are working for rather than from your identity. You're trying to prove yourself by all the great things you're doing. Stop doing that. Get your identity in Christ and then learn to say yes and no appropriately in your life and then have margin in your life. Breathing room. Burnout is not a badge of honor. If you think you're indispensable, you are delusional. I'm not indispensable to this church. This church is really well run. And by the way, because of the staff and the leadership, I meant to say this at the front end, but they free me up to do a lot of what I love to do, and that is to pray and connect with God on your behalf and study his word so that I can present it consistently week in and week out. And I would not be able to do that if we didn't have such a good, healthy staff here. Really great people, but, but I love, I love intimacy with God. I love praying. I love connecting with him. I love doing what I do here. And, um, and it's, it's a team effort, but I also know I'm not uh, indispensable, and these guys can step up, and they're going to do a wonderful job this summer as you guys support them, each of these guys. You guys have already heard Scott. You've heard Darren, but the, the younger guys are uh, Ricky, Ryan, Josh, 
and Phil. These guys are all going to step up, and I think it's going to be wonderful, absolutely wonderful for them and for us as a church family as God continues to grow us. Acts 6, 1 through 4, the disciples were increasing in number, and there were some widows being neglected through the daily distribution. So seven men were chosen to serve so that the 12 apostles could stay focused on prayer and the ministry of the word. Mark 1, 32 through 38, Jesus finishes up one of the, the busiest ministry days of his life, and he has enough margin in his life to get up early the next morning and goes off to a desolate place and prays and connects with the Father. And the disciples come out kind of early looking for him in a panic going, Jesus, where have you been? Come on, the people need you back in the town. And Jesus goes, nope, we're going on to the next town. Good healthy boundaries, good margin. So do you have good boundaries to maintain healthy margin in your life? That's all Nancy and I are doing with this uh, summer sabbatical after 27 years of ministry here. Number seven, be teachable and open to criticism because you are a work in progress. Exodus 18, 24. This is phenomenal. Listen to what Moses, this is what it says. So Moses listened to the voice of his father-in-law and did all that he had said. I mean, he could have pulled out the Moses card. I'm Moses. What? You trying to tell me how to do my business? Have you seen my resume lately? Plagues in Egypt, parting the Red Sea, providing food and water to grumbling Israelites. I mean, that's pretty good. And you, you have the guts to come in here and try to tell me how to do it. He doesn't do that. He doesn't do that at all. He's not conceited or glory hungry. Conceited or glory hungry people are not teachable and are very defensive to criticism. Moses was more concerned about God's glory and the welfare of God's people than his own ego. Sometimes the best advice comes from the least likely of sources. I would never have expected a pagan priest, I think he's converted now, but he was a young believer at that, but I would have never expected a pagan priest to give Moses advice that he would have followed. But it's showing his humility and his desire to glorify God. Proverbs 12, 15, the way of a fool is right in his own eyes, but a wise man listens to advice. Proverbs 19, 20, listen to advice and accept instruction that you may gain wisdom in the future. Let me tell you this. Let me confess. I have not always been good at receiving criticism, especially in the early years. I'm much better now after 27 years. But, uh, but in the early days, uh, people would put cards and even times, sometimes people would come up and confront me and, uh, about what they didn't like about me or about the church or about what I said, and I didn't always respond appropriately. And uh, especially in our staff meetings, people would, they would read the cards, and I'd like flip out. You've got to be kidding. That person, they don't even know what they're talking about. You know, very defensive, very, uh, very critical. And by the way, there's hardly a weekend that goes by that we don't get some sort of criticism or I don't get some sort of criticism. Last weekend, I got some criticism from one of the, uh, one week, one of the services. And it was good. It was appropriate. I appreciated it, what she, what she said. And it was very helpful to give me that perspective. But uh, because I get so rattled because of the communication cards, we had staff at that time, they started writing bogus communication cards just to rattle my cage. <laughs> I fired every one of them. <laughs> That'll teach them. But it just showed you that, like, what the, why is this guy this... 
This guy needs to get a grip on his identity. And Jesus is what they, they didn't tell me that, but I knew that because of my overreaction to that. I just thought, I need to grow up, don't I? God's using this to mature me. Yes, he is. I need to be more teachable. Number eight, your greatest tools are prayer and God's word. I don't need to spend much time on that. We've already talked about prayer. But that's what he tells, Jethro tells Moses to present Present the people to God before, uh, present the people before God, bring their cases to God, and then warn them about the statutes and the laws. So how are you doing in your personal time in Bible study? How are you doing there? Kind of going, visiting that first one about prayer. Do you know how to minister to someone in prayer and God's word? If I were to call you up and say, hey, I've got a few folks here that need help, can you sit down with them and pray with them and then minister God's word to them? You need to. If you're a believer in Jesus Christ, you've been walking with him for, for more than a year, you should be able to know how to do that. You need to be able to know how to minister to folks. So if someone came to you and said, I'm struggling with anxiety or anger or finances or how do you do a devotional time? Teach me how to do that. Do you know how to sit down with them and, and help them with that? That takes us to the next point. Leadership or influence is about equipping and empowering others. That's what we're about here. Equipping and empowering others. Like I said, most of the ministry happens in our small groups. You know where most of the pastoring takes place? In our small groups. Our small group leaders are pastors. We can't cover all the bases as a leadership staff. There's way too many needs, and so that's where the ministry happens. There's equipping. We do it through Game of Life. We do it through the SLAM class, and then there's empowering. Empowering is you've got the authority. You've given, we've given you that authority. Exodus 18, 19 through 26, Moses, you need to be working your way out of a job. That's what he says. You need to delegate more. D.L. Moody put it this way, I would rather raise up 100 men than to do the work of 100 men. So whether you are a pastor, parent, or company supervisor, your goal is not to create dependence or independence, but interdependence. And the Bible is packed full of that. That's the Jesus model of making disciples. So what am I doing? What are you doing to raise up and release those under my leadership? And to pull, pull this off, you must practice strategic absence. And that's why Nancy and I are going to be strategically gone for two months this summer, okay? And here's the last one. Character is more important than charisma, than giftedness. I thought I'd cut some of this out, but this was, this was about as long as it was last night, so I, I don't apologize. It's, it's, I think we need every bit of this. There's a lot here. So character is more important than charisma. He actually lays out the kind of men that he needs to choose. Able men, fear God, trustworthy, hate a bribe. Gifts are given, fruit is grown. I have seen through the years a lot of very gifted people crash and burn because of a lack of character. I just heard this last week. It was uh, really bad news of a man who was very influential in my life in the early years after 40 years of ministry. He's not finishing strong. I don't know if you saw it in the news or read about it, but uh, sexual misconduct allegations. He resigned his church. Big, big mega church, very influential leader. Very gifted, very gifted. So let me just say this, we're getting ready to take communion here, but parents, it's not your child's athletic, academic, or artistic greatness that matters most. It's their character that will either make them or break them in life. Your child's giftedness might get them a scholarship, but it's their character that will get them through life successfully for God's glory. That's what's most important. 
So are you becoming more and more, as, as a person, as a Christian, more and more Christ-like in your attitude and actions? Is the fruit of the Holy Spirit more and more evident in your life? Let's pray and prepare our hearts for communion here this morning. So Father God, may we now apply these leadership lessons to our lives so that we can live grace-paced lives in this burnout culture so that DB will be a place of strong leaders and leadership for your glory and our joy in Jesus' beautiful name. Amen. So we got three stations.